0: Could you rise for the reading of God's word, please? We're reading this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 31 to 35. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sion and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sion and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army. At that time, we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors, but the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured we carried off for ourselves. And the second reading is from First Samuel chapter fifteen verses one to three. <clears throat> Samuel said to the Lord, or Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came back came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy them, destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Thank you. Please be seated.
1: This, too, is the word of the Lord. The second decade of the 20th century saw the Ottoman government launch a systematic genocide in which one million Armenians were killed. Between the years of 1975 and 1979, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge saw the deaths of approximately two million, or 25% of the Cambodian population. In 1995, Rwandan Hutus slaughtered 500,000 to 1 million Tutsis, a genocide not only sanctioned, but initiated by the Rwandan government. The 20th century also saw the deliberate extermination of millions of Jews and responsibility for the deaths of as many as 20 million laid at the feet of Joseph Stalin. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 God orders the Israelites to completely destroy the seven nations of Canaan without mercy. And this conquest began at Jericho with the killing of every man and woman and child in the city. 1 Samuel 15, God orders King Saul to kill every man, woman and child and even the animals of the Amalekites. What makes these mass killings different. Are they different? There's more examples. The great flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's drowning of the Egyptian army, God's putting to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and so on. That's the subject for this morning, and it is obviously not an easy one. Christians are fond of talking about God as a God of love, and rightly so, I believe. But have we paid close enough attention to these Old Testament passages? Some have tried to make a distinction between the God of wrath in the Old Testament and the God of love in the New Testament, but the Bible does not give us permission to do that. The God of the Old Testament, Jesus claimed as his Father. In this Old Testament, Jesus, without reservation, affirmed as the Word of God. So the problem of Old Testament violence at the hands of God does not go away. We can pretend it's not there. We can keep our reading to the Psalms and the Gospels and the Epistles. We can read our Bibles with our hands over our ears and say, I'm not listening. And other people, not Christian, have cited this very reason for their abhorring God, dispensing with the Bible, and therefore dispensing with Christianity altogether. Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, said this The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, notice that word, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. How do we answer that? If somebody said that to you, how might you respond? What have you thought when faced with God-ordained Old Testament violence? Some of you, obviously, will not leave in half an hour thinking, Oh, I get it now. That's no problem. Hey, what's for lunch? And what I say today will certainly not satisfy some of you. But there are some things that can be said. Things that shed some light on this question of God's violence. And what it reveals about his character. So please hear what I say today with an open mind. But I caveat that by saying that the Bible does not present these things as answers per se. They only shed light. The closest the Bible comes to a response to anything like our question. Well, that's for later. I want to start, though, by placing the question of Old Testament violence in its context, which is the Old Testament world, because this is where the things that we're thinking about took place. Again, this does not answer the question that we are asking, but it will color in the lines, and we need to see the picture a little bit more clearly before we can even ask, what is the picture showing us? Now, we live in a Western culture that, for the most part, hates war, that it is to be avoided except even in the most dire consequences. But even then, some would say that there is no excuse for war of any kind. But no Israelite would have looked around and wondered why there was so much violence in the world around him. War and violence was the reality in which most of the ancients lived. It was dog-eat-dog. Quite literally, kill or be killed. Peoples and nations, as a matter of course, either fought to expand their territory or fought to defend their territory. Okay? War was not constant, and not everybody was constantly in fear that somebody would come and take away their land and put them to the sword, but warfare was not uncommon, Also, in a time where gods were local and each people had their own patron gods and gods were only honored when they proved to be more powerful than other gods, such also was the world in which they lived. This is the reality, for example, behind the plagues in Egypt. When Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord that I should obey him? We have dozens of gods, I've never heard of Yahweh, who is he? And God proceeded then to uphold the Egyptian gods to ridicule, one by one, ending with the god Pharaoh himself, forcing them to concede that their gods were powerless against the gods, the God of Israel. So then Pharaoh knew who Yahweh was, and he then let the people go. And so it was with the nations that would later surround Israel. Israel. God would be serving notice to them that the God of Israel was above all other gods. So when Israel got to Jericho, there was a lady named Rahab who told two Israelite spies that everyone there knew what God had done in Egypt, and as a result, they were melting in fear. So this context was the raw materials within which God would work to establish his covenant people in the midst of pagan nations. And maybe people a thousand years from now will look back on our era and say they took the land of the natives either by force or by squatter's rights They all drove one or more cars and built factories that poisoned the air. They lived lives of unparalleled luxury while hundreds of millions were starving. How could God have possibly be present in such a society? How could he have blessed at that time? And yet this reality and the people who live here right now are the raw materials in which God works. And his kingdom advances. Now, this is not, of course, an answer, but at least it provides a little context in which the question we're asking can be set. Violence and the recognition of a God's worth only by the power that it exercised was the reality in which God was working. So from there, we can begin to talk about the question there are a couple of factors that come into play in considering the violence of God in the Old Testament. Let me say before that even, that there was tons of violence in the Old Testament that didn't have anything to do with God. The violence, violence was prevalent in the Old Testament in many, many ways, but often it was people or nations that chose to go to war. That does not let God off the hook, however. So some things at play. The first is divine judgment and divine goodness. How can I say goodness when I talk about this kind of thing? Lyndon is here. got to ask you this. What do you recommend when somebody comes to your office, he's a dentist, with a tooth that is so rotten that it's not only beyond repair, but it's infecting the gums around it? What would you say? What do you do? Take out the tooth. We have a number of people in the congregation who either have or are still experiencing some form of chemo, radiation treatment. What is that treatment d- designed to do? Kill the cancer. And sometimes a dentist or a doctor will do violence in our bodies in order to do good. We, say, we live in a society that seeks to be just. We have officers to enforce certain laws that we deem necessary so that we can live in a secure and civilized manner with one another. So if someone breaks one of those laws, they are judged. Violent crimes, armed robbery, assault, rape, murder are judged particularly harshly when the system is just. These judgments we make because we agree that it is good... For the rest of us to have such a person removed from society. And the one who hands down that sentence we call a judge. God is a just judge. And every act of violence that God either ordained or carried out himself was an act of divine judgment. Every act. But it was not judgment for its own sake. If it was... God in his moral perfection and infinite holiness would be absolutely justified in snuffing out the life of everyone on the planet. For all have sinned. It's God's mercy that anyone survives on this day. And if we don't think that, then we misunderstand the real nature of sin. But I preached about that before. God's judgment was always, as one theologian has phrased it, always to restrain evil or deter some greater atrocity. It was always for the sake of good. So let's consider three examples of that. What about the great flood of Noah's time? Wasn't God a little over the top in his severity of judgment? In Genesis 6, this is what we read. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Now the heart is the seat of all thought and action. So we ask this. If everyone has a heart that is only evil all the time, what will that culture look like? What kinds of things will people do to each other? What kinds of things would nations do to each other? And in a male-dominated culture, what will happen to women and to children? And then we must also ask, what would it take to bring an end to that kind of evil and to prevent potential future generations from perpetuating that kind of world? Perhaps send in a humanitarian organization. Educate the masses. Their only hope for that was Noah, a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. And he preached for a hundred years and no one repented, not one. So God judged. He chemoed the world. I'm not sure he could have done differently. And I can't help but think it was a partial mercy to the world that was to follow. What about the command to Israel to eradicate from Canaan the people who lived there? Genocide on a mass scale. Centuries before that, God had made a covenant with Abraham to give this land to his descendants. And now, these descendants, a nation themselves... Have left slavery in Egypt, have, their made, have made their way to the land that God had promised them, but there are already people living there. Now what? They are to conquer the land. But is God just giving the Israelites living space? Kill the inhabitants so that you can live there. In Genesis 15, when God made his solemn covenant to establish Abraham's descendants in this land, this is what God said about the years to come. He said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted there for 400 years, slavery, but I will bring judgment, plagues, on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, the Exodus. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the Israelites finally did arrive on the borders of Canaan, the land of the Amorites, Their iniquity was complete. Their sin had reached its full measure. The time had come to judge, and Israel was to be the instrument of God's judgment. Now, in its world, the wickedness of Canaan was unparalleled. John Wenham, in his book, The Goodness of God, writes, The Old Testament directed its bitterest venom against Baalism and the cult of Molech. Baalism was a fertility cult in which sexual license was glorified as something religious and meritorious. There were holy prostitutes, male and female, for the gratification of the worshippers. The wife of Baal, named Anath, loved war. And this comes from a poem about her. Deciding on a massacre, she smote and slew from seacoast to sunrise. Filling her temple with men, she barred the doors and hurled at them chairs, tables, and footstools. Soon she waded in blood up to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Her liver swelled with laughter. Her heart was full of joy. She then washed her hands in gore and proceeded to other occupations. This is a goddess killing for the sheer pleasure of it. And this is a goddess worshipped in Canaan. The worship of the god Molech included child sacrifice. Molech was an idol, hollow, and a fire would be built inside him, and his arms were cradled. When his arms were red hot, a child would be laid on his arms as an act of worship. And even today, when somebody tortures a child, we would all say there is no punishment too great for that kind of crime. What about a nation that makes this a regular part of their religious life? These kinds of things were the religious life of Canaan. This is the land to which Israel came. And so whenever we think of the judgment of God on the Canaanites, let us at least not see them as a nation of innocent farmers on whom the Israelites descended in hordes, like Attila the Hun. It just was not like that. Our third example. What about the command to wipe out the Amalekites... Given to Saul, as we read in 1 Samuel 15. Well, who are the Amalekites? They were a nation of people with whom the Israelites had had dealings before. The Amalekites were another pagan nation who, again, practiced the sacrifice of infants and in worship, but they also had an agenda to destroy the Israelites. They had fallen upon the Israelites when Israel was only weeks out of Egypt, a newly released nation of slaves, entirely unused to defending themselves. The Amalekites trailed behind, killing off some of the Israelites who were lagging behind, before launching a full-scale attack. Deuteronomy 25. Remember the Israelites, he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Amalek, after this, was a constant enemy to Israel. In Judges 6, they, with the Midianites, regularly for seven years, plundered Israel of their crops over and over again. And at least one theologian has gone so far as to suggest that the agenda of the Amalekites was the extermination of Israel. So the threat of the Amalekites never went away. This was another one of those kill or be killed situations. And later, because Saul actually did not fulfill the word of the Lord to destroy the Amalekites, later they looted the town in which David and his men and their families were living So here we have some cases of God's judgment and God's goodness. The first factor that we need to consider as we question the violence of God. The judgment of deep-seated sin, prevention of further atrocity on a grand scale, and his goodness as expressed in the preservation of Israel and the removal of at least some evil in the world. So, the second factor I want to consider this morning is an extension of that last statement the preservation of Israel. Israel was the unique people of God. God had entered into a covenant, which is a solemn contractual promise, in which the one who binds himself to the other gives himself an unyielding commitment to the covenant, the breaching of which brings the severest of consequences. So God had entered into this covenant. God had made this covenant with Abraham concerning his descendants. And God said that through a nation of Abraham's descendants, God would bring blessing to the world. God reaffirmed that covenant at Mount Sinai, in which had all the protocols of a former covenant-making ceremony. And there God promised that he would be Israel's God, that Israel would be his people... And again, that they would be the nation through which God would bless the earth. And so God, in that covenant, took upon himself the responsibility of caring for and protecting his people. And his commitment to carrying out that promise was self-evident. In Egypt, from the Amalekites, giving them food and water in the desert, and so on. And in a culture of dog-eat-dog nationalism, in war there were these periodic and extreme threats to Israel's very existence as a people. Now what would you do for the life of those dearest and nearest to you? If their life was threatened by people with violent intent, how far would you go to save their life? And what if you had to do it in a society and time in which there was no law? None at all. No law to protect, no law to restrain. That was exactly the situation and the context in which God acted. So God fought for Israel and fought against Israel's enemies. But even beyond the physical preservation of Israel was their moral preservation. God was establishing in the land a holy nation that would be the visible expression of a holy God. This nation would be a nation unlike any other, a light for the Gentiles. The joyful but reverent worship of the one God, not the violent orgies of the worship of many other gods. The ethical life reflecting the character of God, not the sacrifice of children to appease the gods and procure their favor. And if Israel's life enmeshed with the Amorites and the Amalekites and others, there would be an inevitable influence that would decay the moral center of God's people. And God's directive to remove that inclination of man's heart only evil all the time, cancer showed both the monstrosity of Cain and sin and the lengths to which God would go to protect his people from that moral cancer. And rather than simply wiping them out as he had done with, for example, the flood, God made Israel the instruments of that judgment so that Israel, too, might gain a healthy fear for what it meant to violate God's holiness to such an extent. The tragedy is, however, that Israel weakened in their resolve to follow God's directive. The first two chapters of Judges already shows this decline from defeating the Canaanites to so they did not drive them out, so the Canaanites lived among them, to they lived among the Canaanites. And this assimilation of Israel into the life of the Canaanites did, in fact, lead to the moral destruction of Israel. Israel. For the unfolding of the story of judges is that of repeated rejection of their God and worshipping Baals and the gods of the nations surrounding them. They then engaged in civil wars, Israelite tribes against one another. They willingly and repeatedly jumped into the pagan religion and culture of the Canaanites. And this became so much a part of their story that centuries later, kings of Judah, like Ahaz, burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And his grandson Manasseh, who did the very same things and also erected altars for Baal. Israel's history was one long history of breaching the covenant. And though God remained almost fanatically faithful, Jumping to rescue and to bless whenever they showed the faintest glimmer of repentance. He also would not let them continually violate his holiness and his reputation. And when their sin had reached its full measure, he judged them as well. And it should be said that the judgments of God on his own people was as severe as his judgments of the Canaanite nations. God gave them into the hands of the nations. The Israelites were repeatedly conquered, killed by the thousands, pillaged, and eventually exiled. Read the book of Lamentations to get a picture of God's severity to his own people. So, so far we've considered the judgment and the goodness of, God's, of God, God's commitment to protect physically and morally his people, his physically, which they wanted, morally, which they resisted, the third thing we're thinking about is this, in mandating Israel's wiping out of the Canaanite people, what choice did God have? I don't want to make it sound like God is helpless in the face of any situation, but it's good for us to look at the alternate possibilities for God's judgment and his actual decisions. Maybe God could have converted the Canaanites en masse rather than acting so severely to judge them, judge them for their wickedness. But could he have done that? To do that, God would have to simply override the inclinations of their hearts. He honors the ability to choose, an ability he gave us in the first place. But he does not interfere with the consequences of our choices either. You make choices, he says, but know that your choices have consequences and will impact other people. If I have a bad day and I'm so angry that on my way home I decide I'm just going to take it out on someone and run over that pedestrian, God will not make it so that once I've hit him and run run him over, he just gets up unhurt, brushes himself off, and carries on. If he did, my choices would no longer matter, would they? And I can do what I want with impunity, with no worries that my actions will have any negative impact on anybody. But we can have it both ways. God cannot and does not override our bad choices, but not our good ones. He does not magically convert or change the inclinations of the thoughts of a nation's heart either. He does not make a nation suddenly choose differently. And they would not be choosing at all. And none of us wants a God who, in essence, says, I know you chose, chose this, but it doesn't matter. You're going to do that. So instead, Canaan's whole culture becomes the sum of its choices over the years until it was time to judge. God's choices were remove their ability to choose, to let their evil continue to increase, or to judge. He judged. Maybe God could have just pushed them out of the land to make room for Israel. Why kill them? Well, we've seen the necessity of judgment, but also, they then would have been people in need of a land, so they would have had to take it from somebody else, and there would have been slaughter in either case. Either way, God's choice to judge or evict leads to the violent deaths of a nation, Maybe God could have just killed them humanely, having them die quietly in their sleep or something. Maybe. And I find this difficult to answer. But perhaps I don't have to answer it. God is sovereign and needs no defense. But even even if he had killed them all humanely, that wouldn't necessarily solve our problem people would still be horrified at a God who would kill tens of thousands of people at a single stroke. Had a nation in our day killed a massive number of people, no matter how humanely, we'd be horrified, and we are. Had God done it, we would be no less horrified, and we'd be asking the same questions that we're asking today. So everything that I have said from the beginning to this point is only part of the equation, and truth be told, it's the least part. It's the tip of the iceberg of which 90% is below the surface, beyond what we can see. There's mystery here. There's a part of God's character and actions and motivations that we cannot see. We Christians have always been mystified at God's good actions and love toward us, We don't know why he loves us. Sometimes we pray, thank you, Lord, that you considered us worthy, etc. But he didn't. That's the point of grace. We were not worthy. But he loves anyway. And we don't know why. Except that the biblical phrase, he did it according to the pleasure of his will. From our perspective, it's entirely irrational. And yet we are so grateful for that love. Well there's mystery on the other side as well. We don't understand his love or his judgment. Though for myself I understand his judgment more than I do his grace. I'm just not sure why the judgment is any why his judgment is less severe than my sin. It's it's a surprise to me that I have not been judged according to what I deserve. It's not a surprise to me. I am surprised that I have been shown mercy. But you know what? At the end of the day, God is God. He created, he owns, he gives and takes away as he sees fit. From the vantage point of our own situation and worldview, which is, by the way, unique in all of history, it is not for us to make God the defendant in ourselves, the prosecuting attorney, judge and jury and as I alluded to earlier in the Bible where people have tried to put God in the defendant seat for God's unfair treatment of people only when anything like today's question is put only happens twice and only twice is there a response to that question one is the book of Job Job laments his own suffering and pleads with God, This is unfair. I have always worshipped you. I have lived a righteous and generous and wise life, which, by God's own testimony, was true. What have I done to deserve this? And God's answer to Job is not an answer. God shows up, and in as long a rebuke as you'll find anywhere in Scripture, God says, in essence, Do you want to tell me when I am acting rightly or wrongly? Okay, let me ask you something. Who built the oceans and set its boundaries? Who put the stars in place? Who invented ostriches and horses? And who is the one who knows exactly when the deer has her babies? Who invented wind? Who decided there should be clouds? Is it you, Job? Somebody was mocking a street preacher who was speaking to the crowd about the power of God as exercised in creation. When out of the earth, God formed all the creatures that walk across the land. So what? The man said, I can make a rabbit. Watch this. And he bent over and started to pull together handfuls of dirt. But the preacher said, hey, make your own dirt. Job, can you make dirt? In other words, Job, until you can run the physical universe, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. And Job's response to that was, I heard about you, but now I've seen you and I take it all back. I had no idea who I was dealing with. The answer was not an answer. Job challenges, you have to tell me why, and God says, I don't have to tell you why. The other place is in Romans. Romans where Paul puts this argument in the mouths of his hypothetical devil's advocate opponents who say if God chooses for his people some and not others, even before they're born and haven't done anything, if God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then judges him for it, then how can it possibly be right for God to find fault and judge anyone at all? That's been a theological argument for years. Calvinism or Arminianism? Did God choose me or did I choose God? Did God elect or did I convert? Because if God chose you and not me, then surely Richard Dawkins is right. God is unjust. God is capricious. And the Bible's answer is that God doesn't owe anyone an answer. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And so for Job and for Paul in Romans, when the question is most pointedly asked, isn't God treating people unfairly? The only response given is, who are you to challenge God and to tell him that you know better than he does what he should be doing? That may not be a satisfactory answer, but it is the only response that the Bible gives. The mind of God and his workings are largely unseen by us and it is not for us to demand that we understand it all. Yes, we do try to seek him and understand him as best we can. It is a relationship, after all, and relationships are about getting to know somebody. But I don't even know my wife fully. Am I surprised to discover that there are things about God that I don't understand? But for myself, I have experienced and seen enough of his goodness to trust him in what what appears to be his hard side, and it does come down to that. Comes down to trust. So, what about all God's violence in the Old Testament? I see some things that help me to understand a little bit, but at the end of the day, I say God is God. He can and does do what he sees fit to do with me and with his world. So, at the end of all this, then what do we do? We consider God's other side. If we focus only on God's love and his niceness, we have an unbalanced and therefore wrong understanding of God. Children's Bibles do this all the time. Noah's flood. God kept Noah safe. Isn't it great that God keeps us safe? So when their parent dies in a car accident, does a child child say, I thought God was supposed to keep us safe. The God they've heard about doesn't exist. What about everyone else who got killed in the flood? David killed Goliath, and the God that helped David is the same God who goes with you onto the playground tomorrow. So the child goes onto the playground it gets laughed at and beat up. This God that I've heard about doesn't exist, or he doesn't care about me. And what about the Philistines who got slaughtered that day by the Israelites? At Jericho, the walls came tumbling down, but then every man and woman and child was killed, and so on. If that sounds unduly critical, let me say this to you parents and teachers, and I can't emphasize this enough, we cannot show our children a one-sided picture of God and then expect them to love him when they grow up and discover the truth. They could justifiably say, they lied to me about God. And the most important thing to me as a parent is that my children grow up and with adoration surrender their lives to God. But I want it to be God as he is that they surrender their lives to. I do not want them ever to think that I deceived them about God by leaving things out. Now, does that mean that when I read the Bible with my five-year-old, I use words like slaughter and massacre? Do I need to show them a picture of David holding up Goliath's dripping head? Of course not. But I do use words like judgment and death and punishment and so on. And when we talk about the flood, we do talk about those who died and why. And as they grow up, I'll seek to color in their understanding of God. But the Bible says, note the kindness and the severity of God. Focusing on the severity of God does two things. It makes us even more astonished at God's grace. I deserve the sword. I've been given forgiveness. I deserve divine wrath. That wrath was poured out on Jesus. Instead, I don't understand it, but there it is. And whatever was going on in the heart and the mind of God, I am glad it was going on. And then also it makes our ministry so much more urgent. So many people around us are standing in the path of God's just wrath and don't know it or don't care. And we lift up Jesus and the cross and say, the wrath has been poured out here already and will not be poured out again. Why stand in the place of coming judgment when you can stand with Jesus, the only place where you are safe from judgment? How do we buttonhole everybody and say, turn or burn? No, of course not. But it does lend significance to the living of our lives, the relationships that we have, our interactions with others. We know what it's like to save and stand in a safe place. and We want others urgently to know that same reality. Consider the other side of God. And secondly, and again, we don't only consider God's other side. We consider his kindness. We do consider his love and his grace and we think about it. We cannot only consider his judgment, but it's only when seen side by side with his judgment that his grace is seen for what it is, amazing, more amazing than we would otherwise know. And we do not know grace until we know judgment. We do not know health until we know sickness. We do not know satisfaction until we've known hunger. We do not know forgiveness until we've known sin. Who is the God that you know? Is it God or is it an airbrushed God? Does he only carry a lamb in his arms or does he also wield a sword? Does he love or is he just nice? Let us know, worship, and serve God as he is. Romans chapter 11 ends with these words, and so will I. I want to end our service this morning not not by the singing of the hymn we're out of time but with 30 seconds of just being quiet and thinking heard some hard things today and they may not satisfy but they're worth musing on so let's do that just for a few seconds then i'll pray and we'll be dismissed Lord, we know some of Your ways, but very few. You are a mystery to us, and we need Your help to trust You. But I am glad that I do not know all the answers, because it reminds me that I have a God who is big and not small. Thank You for mercy and for forgiveness. And as we go from here and live our lives and teach our kids and interact with people, let us serve the God who is and not some false God that we want to be. To you, be all glory and power, wisdom, all knowledge is yours, and we give you praise and glory and trust through Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.